First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hello, and welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. My name is Jimmy McLaughlin, and up until last year, I was advising the Prime Minister on business, specialising in entrepreneurship and technology. This podcast is designed to recreate a Prime Ministerial-style briefing, distilling key points from half-an-hour interviews with entrepreneurs, specifically asking them about where the jobs of the future are coming from. With jobs and careers becoming one of the biggest topics of 2020, this podcast is designed to bring those conversations to a wider audience. Whether you are just starting out on your career, transitioning, or even a bit longer in the tooth, I hope you'll find these conversations thought-provoking about where our economy is going. Every podcast asks, but please rate us, share us on social media at Jimmy's Jobs, or even be old-fashioned and tell a friend down the pub about it. Onwards to today's episode. Welcome to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Today's guest is Catherine Parsons. Catherine founded the technology educational company Decoded in 2011, just as the London technology scene was taking off. It has trained around half a million people in 85 cities across the world, including at corporate giants such as Marks & Spencer, Unilever, Vodafone and Nike. She previously successfully campaigned for code to be on the national curriculum and was appointed an MBE in 2014. Catherine has perhaps a slightly unusual background for a tech founder, having studied classics and languages at university. Catherine, perhaps you could start by telling us how studying ancient Greek led to you founding a technology company and what Decoded does today. Hello, Jimmy. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Yeah, classics. Uh, doesn't naturally segue into code, does it really? I studied Latin and ancient Greek um, and um, I'm constantly in debate with my professor who's just uh, retiring this year, Dr. Millet at Cambridge, about why I keep telling people to stop learning classics and start learning code. Um, he loves me. He's forgiven me, I think. I loved languages and I'd studied languages since I was about seven. I was into French and uh, I loved Italian and I studied Mandarin and Japanese from the age of 14. I, I, I know I really got into Japanese and uh, signed up to SOAS in London to do their adult education courses in Japanese and and then somehow ended up choosing Latin and ancient Greek at university and you know for me languages are just magical I've always seen them as these this incredible key into another world where you can suddenly converse with people in different places but you can also really understand a mindset and a culture it goes much deeper than just understanding the languages and I suppose fast forward to 2011 I you know there was a new language global language in the world and that was the language of technology and ones and zeros and coding and it was not just impacting you know, our lives, it was impacting every single industry and sector and economy, the app economy, everyone had a smartphone. And someone asked me if I knew how to code. And I, 
I then really wanted to learn. I asked a person that I knew who was a CEO of a technology company if they knew how to code. And I assumed they did because they actually created apps and uh, they said they didn't and they outsourced it all. Uh, and I asked a lot of people that I thought would understand it and they didn't. And so then finally I, you know, I asked a friend who was a coder and, and they said, you couldn't possibly learn this, Catherine. And uh, you study classics. <laughs> you did not study maths or computer science. I'm not teaching you. And uh, thank you, friend. And then finally, you know, in an exhausted kind of attempt to learn about it, I Google searched for schools. There was nothing online at that point. You couldn't kind of learn coding online. And there were a few university courses in computer science. And actually, when I looked at the curriculums on them, coding was not a part of it. And and also, I didn't have the time and I didn't have the money to go to back to school. Uh, and so that really led to going... Well, I want, why is this so, why is this a dark art? Why am I not allowed and not permitted into this world? You know, I studied languages. I can, I studied Latin. Yeah. I can do anything. And, um, and that was the kind of decoded mission statement, which was like to really decode and take away the jargon and take away the cliche, take away the fear from technology and put it in anyone's hands, like mine. And, um, and then I wanted to learn really quickly. And so I wondered whether you could teach someone code in a day, which is quite an out mm. outrageous statement. And um, it, But the idea was, could you condense, you know, me being left at my laptop by myself just for a year, it, could you condense enough knowledge into if you worked hard enough into a, into a day where someone could come in one side, digitally illiterate uh, and fearful, and never having written a line of code and they pop out the other side of that day feeling confident and like an active participant in the digital world and, and they'd actually created something and, you know, really ignited. And then we came together as like a founding team and we built that product and the rest is history. It exploded. And uh, yeah, my life had changed at that moment. It sounds such an amazing story for how you came across that because it was such a kind of tapestry of all the things that you've been interested in previously. Um, and what, what does Decoded do now? And what does the next few years hold for Decoded? So, um, well, we, we're definitely kind of addressing that issue of that digital literacy fundamental challenge, you know, that we're living in this world that is is a digital world now and actually no one has learned this stuff at school and decoded's promise really resonated with the world of business you know we we started teaching 10 people around a kitchen table in east london uh you know we bought the laptops on like a credit card and took them back the next day and convinced this architect to lend us his house to pretend it was our beautiful office and it was really interesting to see who walked through our doors in that first year. Our marketing budget was £27. I remember that. Like, we went back. It was the best number on the spreadsheet. Um, you know, this was a word-of-mouth-grown business. We really promised to deliver on that code and day promise, and, and it did deliver. And we had the boards of and leaders from business all across the world coming in to learn with us. And so our challenge was, well, what other dark arts can we decode and demystify? And, you know, how, how can we teach, 
how can we decode the digital world for anyone and everyone in the world of business? And so we we went into cybersecurity, we went into data, um, you know, and advanced analytics and machine learning. Um, we, you know, we even went into like places like storytelling and quantum computing. And fast forward, you know, to maybe like three or four years ago, I think we taught in 85 cities across the world. And, you know, we, we've reached probably, you know, well upwards of quarter of a million, we're probably about half a million, you know, professionals from graduate level right up to the board at these businesses. Um, I was just chatting to the team, you know, our mission statement has never felt more relevant, you know, digital enlightenment. Suddenly, it's not just a nice to have to be digitally literate. You know, these technologies are really fundamentally impacting our world and you will only survive as a business if you are able to operate in a digital environment and just think about how they're impacting us politically from you know important decisions being made on excel spreadsheets right through to people not understanding the fundamentals of technology behind social media um, and impossible to make craft elegant eloquent policies around data for example Digital literacy, I think, should be legally mandatory for boards and leaders. I think if they don't understand the fundamentals of cybersecurity and data, they should not be leading their organisation. So we're in a really interesting moment with that work where we're really going, how can we take it to the next level? How can we reach... 10 million people with the same high quality of work that we were delivering face-to-face in a digital world. We've also decided to take on the data skills challenge. Uh, so two years ago, we launched our first ever data academy. So that's like building a university within a business yeah. um, and building advanced, really advanced data analytics skills within a company so we'll help them identify their latent talent what's latent talent for them well i think sometimes if you ask uh, an hr director or ceo to identify who they think should be upskilled in advanced analytics either they don't know or they'll go to their talent pool I think that there are raw characteristics behind someone who makes a brilliant learner that are much broader than that. So adaptability, a kind of learning mindset, yes, basic mathematical skills and literacy skills, but those can sit across a business and they can sit in really surprising places. So we had one learner, for example, uh, at one organization, actually an insurance company, who self-nominated for the program. They never would have been selected, I think, normally. They were a pen and paper, telephone person. Those were their skills. And they, but they really wanted to get the job in the data, like the, the AI team. And uh, they got admitted onto the program when they passed our kind of qualifying test. And they were really successful. And they actually got a job within that team that they wanted. And that all happened like within the space of, you know, under a year. So I think it's really interesting when you look at the uh, statistics around 50% of the workforce being easily able to be replaced by machines. Mm. Uh, He definitely fitted that criteria, you know, in his 40s, pen and paper, Excel spreadsheet, telephone skills. And I think we're writing off an entire generation of people that could be rapidly and swiftly upskilled. 
And so how, taking that as a, as a case study, I mean, how do you find the, the individuals? Because we all did maths up until sort of 16 at school. So we're all given that sort of basic data skill set, but people might not necessarily think of the math skills that they developed as being a data skill set. How can people become aware of the skills? How do you test for that? So we, you know, I was, I was chatting to you earlier that, you know, IBM claimed they had an amazing bit of AI that could go and find, you know, these people within that organization. We don't, we have a survey, <laughs> but we should probably turn it into an amazing bit of AI. Um, but there are companies doing really interesting things out there, like one called Fathom and Burning Glass that are helping map skills across not just organizations, but entire nations and governments. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, you could survey people against, for example, how many online courses they've done. That's a sign of a willingness to self-learn, which I think is really important. You can do basic mathematics tests if you wanted to test someone's mathematical ability, basic kind of literacy tests. But I think that idea of a self-motivated learner um, who is also well supported by their organization. They're two things that we assess for. Do you have support from your line manager? It's just a question that we ask. And the other one is, you know, where have you taught yourself something in the past? Because actually someone who's probably done a lot of those free online courses is someone who is a self-motivated learner. And so are there particular courses that you would recommend out there? Because I think there are, there are people, you know, I mean, when we go back to thinking about school and doing maths, right? did a GCSE in it. And sort of my defining memory of maths is being told, you know, you won't be able to take a calculator with you everywhere you go. It's like, well, we, we showed them on that front, I suppose. And how do you get the mindset to go back and sort of retrain and try and pick up that? Because the chances are you actually probably remember more of it than you think. You're just yeah. out of the habit. So I guess that's what the basic mathematical courses that you talk about. Are there any that you would particularly recommend that people look at? Yeah, no, it's interesting when we're hiring, actually, we look for not necessarily computer science degrees. We are looking for mathematics, physics, engineering. But I just want to caveat that. It, the only reason that that is the case is because there's this huge, gaping, glaring gap in the education system for high quality technology education, high quality code education in the classroom. We're like truffle hunting. You know, it's crazy. It's crazy that we're looking for these other kind of markers of what could give people great aptitude to be brilliant technologists, you know, coders and data scientists and cybersecurity experts. Why don't we just build them within, within the system? You know, there are more people studying classics at Cambridge still now than there are studying computer science mm. by a vast proportion. So, you know, we are looking for like core confidence and capability in, let's say, maths, for example. And, and I agree with you, confidence is a big key for people to rediscover their, their confidence and their, their belief that this is for them. Actually, a big part of what I talk to people about if I do any kind of public speaking is giving yourself the permission to learn. The biggest barrier that I've seen for people in actually being able to acquire these new skills, one is just starting. Yeah. <laughs> I would say 90% of my job is convincing businesses to just invest in the learning of their people. Once that starts, the rest takes care of itself. 
The second is building up the individual's confidence that they can actually learn these skills and apply them. And that's why actually with the Data Academy, we don't just do it all online. We could if we wanted to. We pair people with PhD level data scientists and mentors and they connect with them maybe, you know, up to six times a month while they're going through the program. And those people are there to really coach them through those moments that learning barrier that you hit where you think, I can't do this or I couldn't possibly understand this, show them, really decode it for them and then actually get them to apply those skills to a real world challenge. There's nothing more powerful than taking abstract skills, applying them to the real world and then seeing what's possible. And so just coming back to that, I mean, this is almost a slightly two-sided one because this is partly what you do for companies, but also you hire a lot of people that decoded yourself. So just going back to... Are there particular courses that when you're looking at CVs to hire at Decoded, you know, fine people might not have engineering degrees or computer science, but those online courses that you talk about, are there any that you think are particularly good? I think if someone had shown that they've done some of the Coursera courses, for example, Mm -hmm. in advanced analytics or any of the online courses from Harvard or Berkeley, I think it's a sign of their level of ambition for self-learning and and it definitely would bode well. But I think first and foremost, we are hiring PhD level talent. So they will probably first and foremost have those degree level qualifications coming out of, you know, universities that are really kind of smashing it really when it comes to this, you know, Imperial, Oxford, Cambridge, Southampton has some brilliant people coming out of it. And actually, you know, our teachers now work very globally. So it's a very interesting time for education and educational standards and what are markers of excellence for education. Who's to say that completing one of the Google, new Google online data science courses isn't as strong a marker of excellence as graduating from Harvard. I love it. I love the disruption. You know, this is an industry that has not fundamentally changed for 100 years. It's still very wedded to its institutions, exams, physical textbooks, the curriculum that it teaches. Yet the world has changed beyond imagination in the last 10 years. And genuinely, I think education was one of the least disrupted industries until 2020 it's hit education hard and um, but I'm hoping it's going to result in a better education system for people and what I mean by that is more opportunity for for talent Mm -hmm. so true talent being given real opportunities and really democratizing high quality education for everyone and its moment has come (laughs) and it's that education that you can you can find anywhere as well and it is amazing i mean if you google edx then you can go and do these harvard courses and so on and they can give you a taster into it and it just shows you what you you might be interested in and some ways it's even more valuable if you do a couple of sessions and think i don't want to do that yeah Um, so i think that's that's really interesting and decoded as well like you talk about hiring teachers there you know again an industry and a profession that hasn't really been updated much in the well really in the last century in some ways what attributes are you looking for uh, in your teachers that you employ to go around the world and teach on behalf of Dakota well they need to be these kind of impossible individuals which are you know brilliant educators they will be standing in front of the boards of some of the 
most meaningful, biggest organizations in the world in a very kind of trusted environment. We're really trusted by leaders to be a very neutral educator and guide on a technology for them. So that's a huge responsibility. So finding individuals who can take that challenge and deliver against it, they need to be brilliant technologists and also just fabulous teachers. And I have to say, I call them like our superstars. They are, they are superstars. And then a slightly different group of people are mentors who work with the Data Academy students. They will have to have kind of PhD level data skills in order to teach them. But again, it's that empathy bit. You know, it's about working with people who are working in one of the most challenging environments in work that we've ever faced right now. And coaching them really you know we call our teachers guides mentors coaches we don't dictate we don't have the answers we are a neutral guide who will empathetically decode complex and scary technologies and we will give you the literacy or put those tools in your hands so that you can as a leader make responsible decisions or as a practitioner you can apply those tools in responsible ways really interesting moment in time because it's kind of hitting us how important it is for the data skills work these are truly powerful tools and when they are applied within a business they can be used for very good effect huge operational efficiencies and you know energy saving benefits for business you know DeepMind uses technology to reduce the energy on its own servers by 20 percent imagine if every single business was deploying technology in that way to reduce waste and you know be more sustainable and be more efficient but they can also be used in bad ways and so data ethics has risen as a topic that we deliver training on as being something that was kind of within our suite of products to being probably one of the most important ones. Yeah, and that's where, I mean, I was involved in kind of setting up the Data Ethics and Innovation Centre when in government. And it's interesting there how sort of skills and skill sets can collide from different worlds, right? Because you you want the sort of engineering data analytics of the innovation side there. But also is the sort of, talked about this in languages as well, is the kind of philosophy behind some of these things and making sure that we get things around AI so that they're not biased and so on are incredibly important. And the thing is, why are they, why are these companies even working with us? You know, the problem is that these skills are not coming out of university in the shape or quantity that businesses need them and want them. In the data skills space alone, you know, the skills gap pre-COVID was half a million people for advanced analytics skills. Forget like all the other ones, you know. Yeah. And But those are interesting to me because they're incredibly well paid and they're globally sought after. And I have this hunch that the UK could be world leading at building that skill set Either you sit around waiting for this magic talent to pop out of university or you behave a bit more like a company like Nike or Unilever or Burberry. You know, and you go, right, 
I'm going to build it in-house. I'm not going to try and do it myself because I'm not an educator. I'm going to work with a company like Decoded and do it now and really get ahead of the game. And that's something that's that's changing a lot as well, isn't it? Is that this whole lifelong learning, we're all going to have to adapt to it and companies as well. And it is really interesting to see the likes of Dyson and Google kind of creating their own education products. I mean, James Dyson has gone as far now to kind of build a university on, on campus wow. in Wiltshire, which is which is amazing and is is great to see because it's mer- it's the merging of that business and education which is is something that happens a lot more in America than it does in in the UK. The fact is we're all going to have to develop an attitude to being positive towards lifelong learning. Yeah, University Inc. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? Like, who would have thought of a world where there's like a Nike Data Academy? In America, we launched our offices there in... 2014 I think 16 maybe and we have visited a lot of these mega corporate university campuses and that's where we deliver a lot of our training they are as big as towns they are towns they're as big as proper universities it's a different world but it's always interesting to look at what is the problem that they're solving and that there's a war for talent across business and basically the technology companies are sucking it all up you know they're getting all the tech talent all the best talent they get stronger they get better they get all the data and what's happening to everyone else and so big companies are going creating their own universities the value of an MBA is diminishing and they're looking for different skills you know they're looking for technology skills as well as adaptability great mindset entrepreneurial mindsets and they're gonna go build it themselves they're not gonna wait for these thousand year institutions to catch up and how do you kind of build that inner resilience um i can code though but yeah (laughs) i mean set up a company to to solve that um how how do you build that inner resilience as well because yeah we were talking about this beforehand you know it's a challenge for everyone at the moment with the pandemic you know working at home and so forth how do you keep yourself motivated and build that inner resilience for yourself i think this is the most challenging thing for individuals and for me and for everyone i know which is just you know building confidence and all those setbacks that come in on a daily basis that make you question your own worth and you know whether what you're doing even matters in the world I think everyone feels like that I don't care how successful or at the start of your career you are you will find it hard to motivate yourself and I have really invested in things like my personal health and well-being and also external coaching Mm -hmm. is in the last three years and it has been really transformative when I think how much the business has changed in that period of time it is stratospheric and I, I wouldn't say it's totally unrelated to well certainly being able to ride the waves and roll with the punches you've got to have your your own kind of rules and you know your own boundaries and the way that you lead your life protected I think but I really believe in that investment in well-being and coaching and the dramatic impact it can bring to your professional life and what do you find the benefits of being a coach I mean I've written in the times on this about how coaching is becoming much more mainstream in the UK for kind of top business leaders and so forth and you know just top professionals as well how has it impacted you and been a benefit because it is something which is much more mainstream in america than it is here in the uk yeah i think 
the most recent sometimes it's really informal you don't have to necessarily hire a coach I did actually and it was totally transformative in terms of supercharging my ambition for the business and myself but also protecting my personal life a little bit from Mm -hmm. my business life which are totally mashed together (laughs) Um, and there was no delineation but even light coaching like just having a coffee with a serial CEO who has seen it all before and done it all before and just hearing their perspective and letting them be honest about your business or you as an individual, what your strengths and weaknesses are. You know, recently someone said to me, I think I believe in your products more than you do, which really shocked me because I think I'm so passionate about my products. But understanding what he was trying to tell me with that statement was really, really important. It really was about really thinking about the value of digital literacy and skills in the world today and what that means. I think I told you, Jimmy, like uh, a few years ago, what stimulated this whole U-turn was a CEO kind of friend, but I don't know, kind of a very well-known CEO said to me, the problem with you, Catherine, is you are uncoachable. (laughs) And I was like, what? I was really taken aback by it because I run a learning business and I'm all about lifelong learning and I love learning but it turned out there were other things that you could learn not just coding and data science and all those things that I was really passionate about but actually those softer skills so it was a very clever red rag to a bull moment because I was like I'm going to show you I'm going to invest in my own learning and now we do it for the team which is really important and our senior leadership team are currently bringing in a really incredible coach who's going to work with them yeah that sounds good I I will always be somebody who espouses the benefits of having a coach I think it can make such a difference and so as a final question is there a particular sort of business book in the last way it doesn't have to be a business book but is there a book in the last year that you found particularly enjoyable and taken inspiration from gosh this is going to seem so weird but it's just one that I sent someone a link to it's about civilizations, going back to okay. my classics roots. It's called Against the Grain. It's an okay. old book. Yeah. And it's essentially about how civilizations evolved. And something that I took out of it in particular, it's basic premise is that city living was not actually great to begin with you know and actually when we were more barbarian and living you know more you know forager lifestyle actually it was it was better there were other benefits to being in a city that meant that cities evolved but it does talk about the kind of mesopotamian flat lands and wetlands and how we behaved as human beings when we were living that way and the forager mindset bear with me here yeah and you know actually it was just re- i've been really obsessed by thinking about the mesopotamian mind and how we were able to hold and retain so many different bits of knowledge that were needed when we functioned as an agricultural society like that mm. and there's a big theory that technology is dumbing us down and that actually access to information at our fingertips you know question can be answered by google our brains are becoming lazy Mm -hmm. and i think that our minds are miraculous and back to kind of code in a day you know can you condense knowledge into a single day the whole book got me thinking about how do we get our neurons firing again how do we get our minds capable of storing incredible immense amounts of information you know, Neuralink have done lots of publicity mm-hmm. recently about, you know, being able to implant chips into our brain, you know, so that we can plug ourselves into the matrix. Our brains are better than AI. Human intelligence should be powered by artificial intelligence. And, you know, we're obsessed with AI, but I'm obsessed with 
human intelligence and actually how we can get that firing on all cylinders. But our brains get tired, right? That's the, diff- that's the biggest difference with AI. Yeah, so AI is good at taking huge complex databases and doing things with it that humans could never do. But I think it needs to be put in the hands of human beings. And they're the ones that make the ethical decisions. They're the creative tool to point it. We point those tools in the right direction. And another great book was uh, Walter Isaacson's book on Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. You know, convinced that that kind of a person would have been learning advanced analytics and data science and code, as well as art and history. We should not be separating the arts and sciences in the way that we do. They need to come together. We are living in a renaissance. And I believe that, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's are being born every single day, but maybe they're not being given the access to the tools, technology and education that they need to change the world. And so that's kind of where education needs to change. It needs to find the Leonardos and Leonardettes and especially Leonardettes uh, because women are definitely being left behind in this digital disruption. Yeah, well, I agree with that. And I think it's interesting. The Renaissance comparison of now is fascinating because there are so many parallels of it and essentially a lot of disruption happened throughout the renaissance but at the end of it everyone was a lot better off because of it but it feels like we are very much going through that again now but that's why it's been so great to kind of have you on and and talk about how people can kind of prepare for the future because it's not a simple process thank you jimmy That was a brilliant half an hour with Catherine, as I knew it would be. If I were summing that up to the Prime Minister, I would suggest something along the lines of the following. We met with an interesting company this week that is a large provider of data and digital upskilling to large corporates in the UK. They work with Burberry, Unilever and Marks & Spencer to provide data academies. They have also become a modern-day exporter, setting up offices across the globe and having trained half a million people in 85 cities, including American companies like Nike. Catherine believes that it should be a legal requirement for boards to understand data and cybersecurity in the way that all board members have a grasp of finances. The World Economic Forum released a paper this week on the future of work, saying that whilst 43% of businesses expect to reduce their workforce due to technology integration, they still ultimately expect more jobs to be created overall as a result of the innovation. Decoded specifically looks for mathematics, engineering and physics degrees. They are often seen as valuable as computer science. Interestingly, they cited Southampton as an up-and-coming talent hub. The technology founder has an unusual story, having read classics at university, demonstrating again that technology founders can come from many backgrounds. This would undoubtedly pique the current occupier of number 10, as he studied classics whilst at university, and can recite ancient Greek incredibly well. I say incredibly well. It seems very impressive to me whenever he does it. General Careers Council. This is the third time the entrepreneur's story has involved solving a problem they face specifically in their own careers. Whether it was Hayden and energy transparency, PIP and connecting creative workers, or Catherine and learning coding. A few of you have been in touch to ask about how much data roles, for example, are paid. And it's worth saying that the statistics out there show that a junior data scientist starts off at around £40,000, but the most senior ones rise to well over £100,000. So I hope that provides some help on that. I found it impressive how Catherine had been and what is sometimes called to as an intrapreneur, which is where people develop ideas within their own companies. Developing websites and virtual worlds 
at companies such as Condé Nast and Ogilvy. I remember setting up Twitter accounts for some companies that I worked for in the early 2010s. This is obviously subsumed now by entire social marketing teams, but it is worth thinking about what you as a consumer are experiencing and how you can possibly integrate it into your company. This demonstrates to future employers that ability that Catherine talked about, the permission to learn. Whilst I was at number 10, it was so high octane that I did not really have much time for structured self-development. It's why when I finished, I went off to Stanford University for a few months to do their Ignite program. Being back in a classroom was far more enjoyable than I had anticipated. Why did I pick Stanford? Partly I wanted to go on an adventure and the Californian winter seemed more appealing than the UK one. But I also knew that its reputation was outstanding. However, you don't have to jump eight time zones. There are lots of education platforms out there, but it can be difficult to know which ones are good and beneficial. I am asking the guests which courses they particularly recommend. Catherine name checked a couple and it is my plan that we dedicate an entire episode to that or maybe even a series of episodes to it at some stage. If you have suggestions for that, please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter. One more thing from Catherine's interview that struck me was the amount of what entrepreneurs term hustle that she used when starting the company from borrowing the architect's house to just having £27 for a marketing budget, which ironically is about £27 more than this show has for marketing. So thank you to those that have rated us on iTunes and shared it on social media. It really does mean a great deal, particularly when you do it on LinkedIn, as that's where I think most job seekers will be spending their time. But we are on other platforms at Twitter and Instagram at Jimmy's Jobs. Jimmy's Jobs.